whenever it lands in Reno, Nevada, uh, the plane is actually completely surrounded by police, uh, FBI, all the agents necessary to handle this, what they thought may have been a terrorist attack. And uh, whenever they actually stormed the plane with the flight attendants and pilots still in the cockpit, no one is to be found in the rest of the plane. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Question at Hand. How's it going? Um, today, we're in a different spot. We're not in our normal recording location. Uh, we are at Braxton's. What is this? Is this like a party barn? Uh, I don't like to reveal that information. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're sitting at like an old, like retro, like yeah. dinner booth kind of deal. Um, diner booth. That's probably more mm-hmm. appropriate than dinner. Um, but yeah, we're joined today by uh, my friend Brett. Um, Brett is a, we went to high school together. Um, he's a history professor, uh, at the collegiate level. And, uh, he, we were playing golf, uh, two weeks ago probably. And he was like, Hey, if you're into conspiracy theories, I'd love to come talk on the podcast. And I said, dude, that sounds fantastic. Come on. And, uh, he, he wants to talk about DB Cooper. I think you've done quite a bit of research on DB Cooper. Um, so I'll let you take it away, man. Yeah. I've done a little bit of research on DB Cooper and Really, the thing that got me interested in it was, well, first of all, it's aviation history. Uh, I love any anything to do with airplanes. And, you know, just the fact that D.B. Cooper and uh, this story of the, the only unsolved hijacking in not only United States history, but world history, it just intrigued me uh, from the very get-go. So I've done a lot of research on it, uh, have my own personal opinions on it, and... Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a really interesting story. Cool. I had not heard about it until you mentioned it. And I think, Christian, when I told you, you knew about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you know about it? Uh, Other than the, like, what he just said about it being like the only plane hijacking ever. I mean, I've watched that they got away with it. quite a few documentaries on it. And I usually keep up with the theories. I know they recently kind of closed the case, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, but that was the last I heard of anything happening. Okay. Did you know anything, Braxton? Yeah, I kind of knew about it before. I figured it out because of a a, a song by the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have headphones on and things. things that's exactly get crazy. honestly that's what it is. I'm kind of thrown <laughs> off. I, I like hearing my own voice and hearing myself talk. No. Um, no, I knew about it uh, before. I learned about it uh, from a song by a guy named Todd Snyder. It's just a weird. Okay. It's just a song about it. What's the it. song called? It's called DB Cooper. It's literally just titled DB Cooper. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, but then, like, I did research about it, and afterwards, it kind of got me into it. Okay. Well, cool. Uh, I I guess. Do you want to kind of like talk about? Yeah. Yeah. I'll kind of go over the the backstory, what exactly happened, and then uh, you guys want to ask questions and make comments or whatever. Then we'll just we'll just do it like that. All right. That's cool. Sounds good. So uh, the day was November 24th, 1971, and uh, it was kind of a cold, uh, rainy day, and at 3 o'clock, there was, or actually just prior to that, 2.45 p.m., there was a scheduled flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington, and uh, it was going to be uh, chartered by Northwest Orient Airlines, uh, which is now a defunct airline. Uh, They actually merged into Delta, so uh, that's kind of the... The connection of a, a modern day airline, but it was uh, Northwest Orient Flight 305, and uh, you know it was only going to be about a 30 minute flight because it's not really that that long of a distance between Portland and Seattle. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and you have to keep in mind that this is 1971. Uh, this is a long time before a lot of regulation was put into uh, airlines. So, a guy with the alias Dan Cooper bought a ticket with cash, didn't have an ID or anything, uh, at the counter and boarded this flight uh, bound for Seattle. Wow. You'd never get away with that now. Yeah. And uh, get this, that plane ticket only cost $20. Uh, That's great. <laughs> that would be awesome if yeah. you could get a Man. plane ticket for that cheap nowadays. But anyways, 
Uh, it was only a one-way ticket. And uh, a little after 3 o'clock, uh, you know, the, the plane takes off at 2.45. And only about 15 minutes later, uh, this, this character, Dan Cooper, uh, handed a note to the flight attendant. And, you know, not knowing uh, exactly what was going on, the flight attendant actually just folded the note up and put it in her pocket to start out. She probably thought it was like, like here's my number. Yeah, that's that's exactly what she she would say <laughs> when whenever she plane. was interviewed. Yeah. Uh, whenever she was interviewed, she actually said that she didn't read the note first uh, because she thought it was just him flirting with her. So a uh, few minutes go by, and uh, the flight attendant walks by again, and uh, Dan Cooper actually kind of gets her attention again. She he says, uh, "Ma'am, you you might want to read that. I have a bomb." So. Uh, that's whenever this turns into a hijacking uh, because, you know, he has this bomb. You're not really sure what he's going to do with it. And uh, this this is really where the story really gets interesting. So um, eventually, uh, Dan Cooper uh, actually, in that note, not only does he say that he has a bomb, but he also says that he wants to have $200,000 cash delivered to him. Uh, and four parachutes, and then a fuel truck ready to go so that he can escape to Mexico City later on. So all of this is going on, and you know the the all the flight attendants are kind of freaking out at this point, and the pilots are they're concerned at the same time because uh, their number one prior priority is the safety of their passengers, the other passengers that are on board this flight. So eventually. Uh, they radio down to uh, the ground there in Seattle and say, hey, we've got a guy uh, with a bomb on our plane, and uh, he's requesting $200,000 cash and four parachutes and then a refueling truck. So, um, you know, while this flight is still going on, uh, you know, he's actually very calm and collected. You know, he's actually acting like he, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not nervous. Uh, and a lot of the flight attendants later on, whenever they were interviewed, would actually say that he was a very polite guy. Um, you know, not the kind of guy that you would think is a, a, a guy that's hijacking a plane. You know, you'd mm -hmm. think of him as being a scary guy, but really, uh, by all accounts, he was actually a fairly nice guy. So eventually, this plane does land uh, in Seattle, and all of his demands are actually met. You know, because uh, if, it, if they wouldn't have met his demands, then maybe he would have blown up the plane on the ground. So... He gets his $200,000 cash, four parachutes, and then the plane takes back off bound for Mexico City. Uh, he only has one request, though, that the plane fly at 10,000 feet and with all of its flaps extended. And the reason why he wanted the plane to fly at 10,000 feet and the flaps extended is he would make sure that the plane was flying very slow and at an altitude that he could make a jump if that was to take place. So the plane takes off. Uh, everything's really going off uh, perfectly for him from his mm -hmm. point of view. And uh, eventually, uh, while this plane is kind of uh, over the, the border between Washington and Oregon, uh, he forces all of the remaining flight attendants. Oh, and uh, by the way, all, whenever the plane landed back in Seattle, all of the passengers were allowed to get off. The only remaining people on this plane were uh, Dan Cooper uh, and the flight attendants and the pilots. Okay, so uh, while the plane is flying uh, supposedly to Mexico City, he forces all the flight attendants and the remaining crew on the plane to go into the cockpit and lock themselves in the cockpit. And while they are in there, uh, they actually get an alarm that goes off that says that the aft stairs that are located on this Boeing 727 have been lowered. And then suddenly there was a change in cabin pressure that would suggest that he opened the door to this, uh, to this back hatch at the end of the plane. And uh, with a very sudden jolt, uh, they actually felt him possibly leave the plane. Now, they were forced to stay locked into, in that cabin until the plane landed. And with the plane actually being, um, you know, only at 10,000 feet and with its flaps fully extended, even though it was totally refueled in Seattle, it didn't have the range necessary to make it to Mexico mm. City. So 
where they ended up landing was Reno, Nevada. And whenever it lands in Reno, Nevada, uh, the plane is actually completely surrounded by police, uh, FBI, all the agents necessary to handle this, what they thought may have been a terrorist attack. And uh, whenever they actually stormed the plane with the flight attendants and pilots still in the cockpit, no one is to be found in the rest of the plane. So it would suggest that D.B. Cooper did actually make the jump with his ransom money. And, uh, well, the rest is kind of history after that. Um, eventually, there is a very long investigation as to what happened. Uh, Dan Cooper is never found, and there's no evidence ever found of Dan Cooper where the drop site ends up being determined. You know, kind of that border between uh, Washington and Oregon. Um, if you're looking at an actual map of it, it's uh, actually just south of where Mount St. Helens is. Now, uh, eventually, you know, there's this large manhunt that's conducted. Um, they actually call in the Oregon National Guard and the FBI to try and find this guy, but they never find uh, any of the money uh, to start out. I'll get to that here in just a second, talking about the money. But they never find any money to start out. They never find a parachute, and they never find any articles of clothing, and they never find a body. So That's not it, surprising, though, because unfortunately for them, it was basically over like one of the least populated parts of the country, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It was basically heavily Oregon and like northern Nevada. Yeah, heavily forested, um, mountainous region, and then also there's many lakes there, too. So mm -hmm. uh, if he didn't survive this jump, it's possible that he could have ended up at the bottom of a lake somewhere, and they would just have no way of knowing that. But eventually, uh, what's interesting is that uh, about nine years later, in 1980, they would actually find some of the ransom money that uh, D.B. Cooper had actually collected on that 1971 November day. Wasn't it a kid that found it yeah, or something? Yeah, it, it was a like kid. Like a kid playing, and it was uh -huh. like, look, there's a giant... Wad of cash. Yeah, along the Columbia River there in uh, Washington State. It's actually, again, like it's on that border between Washington and Oregon. Uh, they find some of this ransom money uh, washed up on the Columbia River. And the whole reason why they're able to identify it as the money that uh, was given to them was before they handed off all of that money to Dan Cooper, they actually copied every single one of the serial numbers off of that cash. So whenever they find this cash, all of those right. numbers actually match up. Now, the money that they end up finding is only about $5,800 of the original 200000 So they actually aren't able to find the rest of the ransom money. But as far as evidence goes, that is the only evidence that they ever find that really is linked to D.B. Cooper, other than the, the evidence that was left on the plane. Now, as far as evidence that was left on the plane, uh, he actually leaves behind two of the parachutes. Uh, he only uses two of the parachutes. Um, you know, there was four total to start out with. And uh, one of them he uses to actually, you know, deploy. Uh, and the other he actually uses as rope. Um, he actually takes out the other parachute, cuts it up, and uses the paracord as rope to maybe... Uh, we're not really for sure, but possibly tie that ransom money mm -hmm. to himself so that it didn't get away whenever he jumped out of the plane. So, as far as evidence goes, uh, there was, uh, you know, the parachutes left behind and then a black tie with a tie clip attached to it. And um, other than that, there's really not a whole lot of other stuff that they were able to identify with him. Um, he didn't really leave behind very many things that would be DNA testable. Um, you know, maybe they're, they'd be able to get some of the DNA off of that tie. But again, this is 1971 we're talking about. Didn't really cross their mind back then. And, uh, but they still have it to this day. Uh, I don't know if they'd be able to test it. I think they've tried, but they couldn't get anything or something. One thing that I know they did get from the tie is traces of a substance that were used in the production of TV sets. That's right. And they're like, oh, he was like an electronics guy. Maybe he worked in a factory. He was a repairman or something. Yeah. So I, I guess if they're looking for a suspect based on the behavior, 
and what they got from the tie. What I've heard is the two things is he probably had um, parachuting experience probably with the army and then experience working somehow with electronic production. And I mean, the the amount of people that would fit in that bubble. Especially after, yeah. Probably yeah. not many. So again, that makes us even, it makes the story really weird that they never got any leads. There would be some suspects, though, that uh, would really catch the eye of the uh, authorities. And uh, really, the, I've kind of narrowed it down to two main ones. Uh, and I'll kind of go over the reasons why these two kind of stick out in my head. Uh, there was several. They would actually interview over a thousand suspects. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, they would only narrow it down to about 10 what they call serious suspects. Because and out of those 10, I really think there's only two that really could have pulled this off. Now, they got like a sketch, right? Mm-hmm. Based on, because they saw they his do, face. Yeah. yeah, and that, it's kind of become an, an infamous image, you yeah. know, looking of at this guy. sketch, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you should... And the problem is when you look at it, you're like, this looks like the most average person. Yeah, like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and a lot of the, the guys that they would call these serious suspects, all of them do kind of look like this mm-hmm. sketch, but there's these subtle differences that kind of make yeah. you think, well, doesn't every average middle-aged white guy look like this? Uh, so, you know, it kind of makes you call into question the uh, authenticity of, of a sketch like that. Right. Uh, or the, the accuracy, I guess I should say. Yeah. You know what I, I kind of thought when I saw the sketch the first time? You know what it looks like is the, uh, like the, the head chef guy from Ratatouille. <laughs> Skinner? Huh? Skinner? The short one? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. It does. It kind of looks like him. A little bit. I also thought it kind of looked like Steve Buscemi. Well, I was... Ref- I, I don't know. That was the first thing that came to my head for some reason was this chef from Ratatouille, but whatever. Anyway, keep going. So, like I said, I, I've kind of narrowed it down to two main guys that I think did it. And uh, again, there's, there's several out there that Probably, uh, I'm sure there's other people out there that think it might be two other guys that are their main suspects. But for me, a lot of it has to do with kind of what you were saying, Christian, that that prior experience in uh, military and maybe paratrooping. Is is that what they made the decision on choosing these suspects on? That It's part of it. And okay. then other um, information, you know, just, just kind of random things. Like here, I'll, I'll start with this one guy. Now, the, the first one, and really probably the one that I think is maybe the most interesting candidate is uh, Kenneth Christensen. Now, Kenneth Christensen was actually a veteran of World War II. Um, he was around the, the right age. You know, they, they kind of determined that D.B. Cooper or Dan Cooper, whatever you want to call him, uh, was probably around 45 or 50 years old. Uh, so as far as age-wise, this, would, this guy kind of fits in there perfectly. Um, so he was a veteran of World War II and was also trained as a paratrooper in World War II. So he, he was, um, you know, prime suspect for that. Now, the other thing that makes it really interesting, kind of the stuff that you were saying uh, that goes with the tie, in 1954, he actually became a mechanic for Northwest Orient Airlines, the same airline that would be hijacked. And uh, only about uh, four or five years later, he would also become a new flight attendant for that airline. So, uh, like I said, one of the other things, uh, you know, he fit the description as far as how old he was, and, you know, he was, um, you know, he looked kind of the same. Uh, And then also, one thing that we also find out is he was left-handed. And the reason why that ends up being interesting is because on that tie that they recover is a tie clip, and it was clipped from the left side, which would suggest that D.B. Cooper was also left-handed. Now, uh, he never really ends up being a prime suspect, at least from the FBI's perspective, because they, they just don't have quite enough evidence to really you know, charge him with, with anything. However, in 1994, whenever he's on his deathbed, he calls his brother to his side and he says, I have something that I need to tell you but I'm just probably going to take it to the grave. And he ends up taking it to the grave. And 
he never actually admits to being Dan Cooper, but it would suggest that he really did have a secret that he may have been hiding. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing about this is uh, after Christensen's death, family members did discover that he had a vast collection of gold coins and a valuable stamp collection along with over $200,000 in different bank accounts. So maybe he was able to invest some of that money in this stamp or gold coin collection and maybe send some of that um, that money into other bank accounts as well. Now, as far as the FBI goes, um, they actually think that he's a poor match to some of the eyewitness descriptions. Um, however, if you actually look at a picture of the guy, I think he looks fairly similar. But like I said, every middle-aged white guy at that point in time kind of mm-hmm. dressed the same way and kind of looked the same way. Um, now, Christensen was only five foot eight inches tall. Um, the descriptions given by the flight attendants actually suggest that he was five in, five ten or maybe six feet tall. So he was a little bit under that. But again. I think the thing that really interests me about Christensen is that connection with Northwest Orient Airlines. Right. Um, and maybe the reason why he was able to be so successful and so calm while doing this is he knew all the procedures mm-hmm. uh, that Northwest Orient would go through. Uh, maybe he knew what the procedure was if a hijacking was to take place. So, again, he, he may have had some prior knowledge just from training as a flight attendant as to what the, the response was going to be if this was carried out. So that's that's Kenneth Christensen. Now, the other guy that I also find very interesting is a guy by the name of Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Wonderful name. It is an awesome name. Yeah. I can already tell he did it. Your name is Richard Floyd McCoy. Richard Floyd McCoy. Now, Richard McCoy was uh, also a veteran. Now, he actually served in the Vietnam War where he was a helicopter pilot. So it doesn't necessarily suggest that he had the training to jump out of airplanes or a helicopter, but you would think if he's a pilot of some sort, he's done it before. So in 1972, only uh, actually a few months later after the uh, D.B. Cooper heist takes place, on April 7th, 1972, he actually staged a copycat hijacking of a, um, a United Airlines uh, Boeing 727, the exact same type of airplane that D.B. Cooper hijacked. Only this time, McCoy actually asked for a ransom of $500,000, four parachutes, and, uh, you know, asylum elsewhere. They uh, actually don't know, I can't remember exactly where his asylum place was. But again, a lot of the things that uh, D.B. Cooper did, this guy right here is doing the same exact thing, only he asked for a little bit more money. Now, he actually jumps out of this plane uh, over Utah, and for two days, he actually eludes the police. He survives his jump, uh, and only after two days, uh, lots of other evidence starts coming in, and... um, after only two days on the loose, he is actually caught at his house and arrested. <laughs> of course, uh, for for hijacking <laughs> this airplane. So he didn't make it uh, quite as long as DB Cooper did. Now he's still trying to like squeeze through the door with the parachute behind him. <laughs> <laughs> did he like go as an alias, or did he just said he bought the ticket under his own name and everything? And no, he, he hijacked the plane. He didn't do uh, the alias thing, uh, but he. Well, he, he probably did do the alias. I actually need to do probably some research on that. But the reason why I, I think he's, uh, you know, an interesting figure is because he does all the exact same things that Cooper does. Yeah, right. Um, so the question is, is he just a true copycat who read the news and thought, well, I could do that? Mm-hmm. Or is he the same guy who got more careless and then got caught? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So eventually, you know, upon McCoy's arrest, uh, they actually do... Uh, find fingerprints uh, and DNA evidence that matches so that they know they caught their guy for this um, United flight that was hijacked that he that he got away so um, this is the guy who carried this one out now the thing that makes this even more interesting is that uh, 
you know, he's actually ends up getting written off the FBI's list of being a suspect for the D.B. Cooper case. But a lot of the reason behind that is only a, a few years after um, he gets arrested, he actually stages an escape of his own from the, the prison that he was in. And uh, after he escapes, uh, he actually flees to, uh, I believe it's North or South Carolina, and there he actually gets shot and killed in a shootout with the FBI. So uh, as far as the suspect goes and being able to question him anymore, well, he's dead at this point. So uh, they're unable to really, you know, probe into him, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. and, and figure out uh, whether he was actually the one who carried out the D.B. Cooper heist as well. Now, the thing that really makes um, this one also interesting is, again, just all the parallels yeah. uh, between the D.B. Cooper case and his uh, you know, the the fact that it's the exact same plane. Uh, this is really the only type of airplane where this could actually be carried out mm -hmm. um, because the Boeing 727 is the only type of airplane that has those stairs that lower from the very back of the airplane. Uh, any other airplane... Which is the closest ideal you can get if you're going to yeah, jump exactly. out. And uh, really, it's kind of like you said earlier, uh, maybe if, if this was D.B. Cooper, he just got careless. Um, but the, but the, then it makes you think too, like, would the the guy who was supposedly like the most calm and collected guy who was who planned this whole thing out, would he really be so sloppy mm -hmm. as to get caught like that the second time? And my only worry with the second guy is that he did not confess to the first crime. Usually, there's an either an immediate admission of guilt because if he gets caught doing this, generally. You know, a criminal would say, "Okay, you finally ended my spree." Right. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like in this case, he's like, "Okay." And the glory, also. Yeah, yeah. you you caught right. me here. That'd be tempting. Did he deny doing the first one? No, he he never really uh, ends up getting questioned that much about the DB Cooper case because they already caught him with the second one. You know, and they actually sentenced him to forty-five years in prison for this. Uh, so to them, case. I guess it was like, "What does it matter?" Yeah. Did exactly. the Did the FBI or any criminal agencies try to frame this like they got DB Cooper at the time? Um, I'm sure there was, because this only happened uh, about five months after the original, uh, after the actual DB Cooper case. So I'm sure there was a lot of people out there at the time that actually did suggest made an that assumption. Probably this, this yeah. was the same I mean, and guy. That's, that's probably best it was for five the months after. Only five months after. Bro, what idiot goes and pulls off a successful heist and then turns around five months later and tries to do the exact same thing? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Like, see, that's what we think. That guy reads the newspaper one morning. He's like, I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like just the fact that you said that. They they described him as being calm and almost polite, mm -hmm. and I mean he went through the the trouble to like come up with an alias and carry out all this thing. It seems like he was very like plan like he, it was very planned. I mean I don't feel like he would just turn around and do something stupid and get caught. Um, but it almost seems like he at a point decided, hey, I need everyone to go up front so they don't know that I'm going to go jump out of the plane. And he most likely had a car or somebody like waiting to pick him up, I would assume. Like, who? Why, why else would you all of a sudden say, hey, you guys should go up and lock yourselves in the cockpit before I blow up the plane, when really he's just going to jump off at a certain location or in a certain area where he can easily... Predetermined. Yeah, where he can easily escape. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're getting... Because there's no way that he would think that... After all this planning, that he could make it from Washington, right, is where he flew from. So Washington, all the way to Mexico City, on one tank of like gas. Like airplanes don't fly that far, especially not 1971. Like yeah. I'm sure they have more of a capability now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just I feel like there is absolutely no way that he ever even like I feel like Mexico City was just some random spot for him to say to like throw him off his trail. Well, and I think then, the idea probably was I'm going to jump between Washington and Reno. Yeah. Well, yeah, and but Mexico City is but he the never, direct line. Did, to they that. Did, did they say we're landing in Reno, or was that just where they eventually kind of ran out of fuel and had to land? The pilot never really uh, gives any information as to where they're going to refuel. He just says we're going to have to stop somewhere in the middle. Yeah, because with the flaps down and flying yeah. at that low of altitude, they can't make it. 
Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, that, like he would he would have to know. Okay, but when we get there, it's not going to get refueled. Like we're gonna, I'm going to get caught. So I mean, I'm sure if he planned it out as well as it, he executed it, that there was either somebody waiting down there to pick him up, or um, he had this entire thing like certain location planned out because there's no way that you just say, oh yeah, from Washington to Mexico City, but well, we can stop and refuel but not get caught somehow. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. I think his suggestion of Mexico City was to buy himself like, all this space. So right. Start flying this direction. Yeah. I'll jump somewhere in between. I don't think Mexico City was ever part of his plans, but I... Th- no, I mean, this was it's just misdirection. Yeah, but I, I don't even know if, if he had a plan to get down, like a... a a specific jump, a specific point. jump that he wanted to make. I think he just. I know that a lot of people have come up with theories on exactly where he landed and stuff, but um, I think Mexico was to throw them off or to well, yeah. give himself lots of room. Yeah, I mean that could be that definitely could be it. Is that he just did it? Is like I'm anywhere from here in Mexico City, which is totally not the case because they landed in Reno. But I mean. You're giving him lots of space. I just feel like for him in like the middle of the flight to be like, hey, go and lock yourselves in the cockpit. And then he jumps like that had to be planned. Like there was no way that he just picked a random location. It was like, yeah, there's forest out there. I'm going to jump and hope I make it. Like after you've gone to all this trouble to not only like give the lady a note that tells all this stuff and you're like, hey, I got a bomb. Like you might want to read that note. And then you actually pull it off where you get $200,000, four parachutes, like all this stuff. And then it's not planned. You just randomly jump out somewhere. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. And there's actually a lot of evidence that uh, D.B. Cooper uh, had a very extensive knowledge on you know, knowing exactly where he was whenever he was up in the air. Because there's actually interviews with the flight attendants uh, that he was talking to. Uh, before they landed in Seattle and got all the ransom money, that he was actually pointing out locations like, that looks like Tacoma down there. Oh, that looks like that one Air Force base that I've been to. Um, so he knew exactly where he was whenever he was flying. So I would... Which I would, lines up with the flight attendant thing. Yeah. If he pr- probably had been on that route multiple times. Mm-hmm. Most likely, yeah. Um, I also feel like he... I, I don't understand why the flight attendant, after seeing him multiple times couldn't identify him at like if it's Christensen or one of the, or mm. what was the other one? Uh, McCoy. McCoy. Um, I mean, surely she could look at a picture and be like, yes, that is for him. A hundred percent. No question. Now the only thing that I would say that might give her a little bit of leeway, the, the flight attendant is he wore sunglasses the entire time. Okay. Um, so they, you know, I, I know sunglasses are just covering up part of your face, but yeah, no. I mean, it, it makes a difference. It yeah. does. There's a reason that like like agents wear sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Like if they they don't want their identity to be known or superheroes for yeah. that matter, they wear like a mask over their eyes a lot of the time. Nothing else. So yeah. But whenever uh, a lot a lot of these flight attendants and, and even the pilots are shown pictures of these suspects, like actual pictures of the suspects, none of them actually identify them as DB Cooper. Um, now some of these would. Um, not any of them? None of them. None of them. Wow. So they just picked like a list of 10 people and said, yeah, we can throw these in there. Yeah. Okay. It's, wow. It's almost kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even though some of the things that you have to think about is, you know, these investigations and suspects were found years later down the road. Yeah. And at that point, you know, if you're asking one of these flight attendants seven or eight years after these these events happened and shown them a picture they might not have the same memory uh, that they did, you know, as if that the event happened yesterday. Um, so, yeah, for sure. I mean, that definitely makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think he looked like that guy, but he also could have looked like this guy because, I mean, it's been a while, so it's a little fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> now, one, one last thing I'm going to say about McCoy real quick is, uh, you know, he, he was the copycat guy. Um, and the funny thing about it is there was actually a, uh, one of his buddies, uh, after he ends up getting arrested, would actually come forward and tell uh, the authorities that 
Um, McCoy actually did plan this out as a copycat um, mission. Okay, um, now whether th that was actually what McCoy did or not, um, we don't know because he's dead. Um, yeah. But uh, one of the things that this uh, friend of McCoy would actually say is that uh, he he actually quotes McCoy as saying, "If that was me, I would have asked for more money." So, whenever he actually carries out that new heist, he actually does ask for five hundred thousand dollars instead of two hundred thousand dollars, which might suggest that this is a uh, copycat and just that a copycat. Yeah. So. I mean. Yeah, that's pretty compelling evidence. I would it, it is, and that that's probably one of the reasons why the FBI throws this out as a as a potential suspect. But in my opinion, this is just my opinion. I still think he's one of the prime suspects because he does carry out the the same kind of hijacking with a lot of the same knowledge um, that the first one did. The only difference is this one he got caught. Yeah, if it was to be the same guy. You said he jumped over Utah? Oh, yeah, over Utah. That's probably a mistake, number one. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a whole lot of stuff going on in Utah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, compared to where, like, D.B. Cooper jumped mm -hmm. in, like, to heavy forests and mountains, and then you got Utah, which is kind of a similar terrain, but probably not as dense of a forest. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, you're way more likely to get caught, especially when you end up in your home yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just went home. Yeah, uh, that's the that's probably the number one Gosh. bad thing that he did. Go back to your house. Picture <laughs> he sits back down like in his recliner, gets a beer, and turns on the TV. Has the money sitting over on another table. Like, ah. <laughs> it's this funny. is the FBI. Oh no! It's funny because the FBI actually do recover every single bit of that five hundred thousand dollars at his yeah. house. He didn't even bother to try and hide it or, or anything. At least like buried that. in the backyard. Like, yeah. Come on, get some yeah, coffee cans thing with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, dude, that's crazy. What a story. If there's so much evidence to Christensen, why do you think this isn't being reopened and relooked at? I think a lot of it has to do with how old this case actually is. Isn't he dead now too? Uh, yeah. 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 Each of these suspects that I think did it uh, are both dead. Um, yeah, uh, Christensen would actually die in 1994. And, you know, the reason why they actually closed the case, um, I believe it was in 2016, you know, they actually stopped pursuing this as an actual case, the FBI. Um, a lot of the reason why they did that is because this is such an old case. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the original people that probably worked on it have passed away too. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, every and year, I'm sure you, you lose, you yeah. know, yeah, and if leads they, and evidence and everything. Yeah, I mean it's like a scent trail. Like eventually, yeah. you know, the scent fades away. So yeah, and if they were accurate in estimating DB Cooper's age, which was around you know mid forties, early fifties, that would make him today at least in his nineties, if not hundreds. Right. Yeah. So the odds of him still being alive today are yeah. very slim. I'm still living off the $200,000. I'm living very frugally in Florida. Oh, my gosh. This is what we do here in on this Florida. podcast. In Florida. So, okay, I'm not sure if you know this, but my question has always been, how was the money delivered to him? So they would actually... Uh, you know, after they got it at the bank, they actually went to a local bank to get all of this ransom money because, you know, there's not not every FBI office has $200,000 just lying around. Yeah. So uh, they actually went to a local bank to get this $200,000. And while they're, you know, making sure they got the, the right amount, they copy every single one of those serial numbers. And then they just put it in like these knapsacks and deliver it to him. Mm -hmm. And... uh the, the way that it's all carried out is the, the plane's parked on the tarmac there in Seattle. So while the plane's just sitting there getting refueled, um, they deliver this money onto the plane. It's basically uh, these, I believe it's FBI agents or local police officers actually have these sacks of money um, and just put it on the, the plane and then they're asked to leave. Um, because if they approached him at any yeah. closer point, then he may have set off his bomb. 
Okay. Did he even have a bomb? Is that confirmed? Yeah. Um, now, whether it was an actual bomb or not, they're not really sure. But uh, he did have a briefcase that had lots of stuff that looked like a bomb inside of it, like wires and mm -hmm. um, what looked like explosive material. Now, whether it was real or not, there's no way of telling. Cause yeah, it never detonated. He, and in the scheme of things, too, it, yeah. it doesn't really matter, essentially, mm -hmm. because it's it's a bluff whether you have a bomb or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if it was a bomb, he would never detonate it because he just wanted the money, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I, I never knew about the knapsack thing. I thought That's, it was delivered in briefcases. Now, see, my question is, how many knapsacks were there? Yeah, that's a bunch. That's what I'm... I'd have to look at it again. Um, because let I don't know let, was it was two hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars, yeah, and it was in twenty dollar bills. Oh geez, oh, so it was, it was a lot. It was okay. a lot of cash. So even if wow, you got ten thousand twenty dollar bills. So how many? I don't know. Let's think of like a normal like sack. If it's if it's all in twenties, how much money do you think would fit in there? A lot. A lot. It's yeah. still a lot. It's still a lot though, it's a right? Lot. He was probably walking down the highway with a bag looking like Santa. <laughs> <laughs> People would pass him and give him more money thinking he was homeless. But just hypothetically, let's say, because, okay, when was the time that he opened the door? Uh, the approximate time that he opened the door was at 8.13 p.m. that night. Um, uh -huh. So it was already dark by that point in time. And uh, this was, you know, the, the original flight takes off at about 2.45 p.m. Yeah. The next, whenever they land, that's only about, you know, 30, 45 minutes later uh, in Seattle. And then they take off right after they get the money. So uh, while he, while they're in the air and whenever he makes his jump, it's already dark, about 8.13, 8.15 p.m. Uh, Pacific right. time. See, I always thought that like the, finding the other locations of the money is that he, you know, he took a few wads of it, put it in a, one of the bags, not like a full bag and like chunked like two of them out the window and just hoped that they, and then waited like another it. hour or 30 minutes before he jumped. Mm -hmm. And see, there's, it's really a, uh, for, it's a chess uh, game, it's essentially, a right? As to when he actually made his jump, because yeah. uh, they're locked in that cockpit, and you know all the other people that are still on the plane for the rest of the flight, all the way to Reno. So they actually don't know for sure exactly yeah. when he made his jump. Really, and that it's just, area, it's just an assumption that yeah. he made his jump pretty soon after he opened the door. So right. there's there's not really any. Because I've seen stuff where it was like, oh, like just before they landed in Reno, like that's when he jumped. Mm -hmm. The thing that I would still suggest points to him making that jump right after mm -hmm. uh, was the money that they would find on the ground later on. Right, right. Um, since those serial numbers matched up and it was so close to where they originally were looking. I mean, the Columbia River is actually only, uh, I believe it's only 15 miles away from where they suspect he made his jump. That's right. the reason why I think he made Unless his jump right there. Throw yeah, it out. Yeah, he didn't throw out yeah. a dummy bag. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> or he survived his jump and went and planted some of that money later. Oh, on. I know. Yeah. It's all of. Uh. <laughs> or he had the 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 thing open on the plane and he's like transferring it into one bag or something. To take with him and he drops some and it rolls out the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows, man? You never know. Wow. Who knows? That's part of the fun about it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> See, that's what's always been interesting to me is because it's not like, it's not a conspiracy really, and it's not you know, so much of it is documented. Like this happened. This guy was real. He was never found. You know, some evidence was found, but the. It's such a narrow frame of what could have happened. Mm -hmm. But in that narrow frame, it's essentially infinite possibilities. Yeah. That's what makes it interesting. And, and one of the Can you imagine if if uh, it was Christensen? Is that right? Yeah. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Uh -huh. I'm having a hard time remembering these names for some reason. Um, so that would have been insane if he had actually told his brother like on his deathbed. Yeah. Do you know how crazy that'd be? Like We wouldn't be sitting here talking about this probably because... It would have been solved. The only problem with that 
is there have been several people come forward and say they did it. Right. But That's there's lots the of evidence that points to them not actually doing it. You know, people that just want to get attention. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, if he comes forward, it's on the death. He's bed on his thing. death yeah. bed. That's true. He's like, like, what? What is he gaining from coming forward? Yeah. With this information, and he does have a lot more evidence pointing to, towards him. Yeah. Being the the prime suspect. Dude, that would have been insane. Now, one of the things I did fail to mention earlier is uh, whenever they actually take back off, um, and her, you know, whenever he, right before he makes his jump, uh, the FBI actually does contact the U.S. Air Force, and there are two fighter jets that are actually tailing this plane while it's in the air, you know, hopefully to try and keep an eye on whether he jumps mm-hmm. or not and to see where this jump location is going to be. The only problem that these two fighter jets face is uh, with that Boeing 727 flying so low and so slow, the these fighter jets can't fly at the same uh, speed as mm-hmm. this plane. So these are uh, sitting here like, what, doing they're this? Circling him. Yeah. Yeah. They are, they're forced to circle. And it's dark. And, and it's dark. So there's uh, these, these two fighter pilots that are flying these two jets. They don't see anything, even though they're right there. And, you know, it would have been great if they would have seen something, but yeah. um, they never do. And, and I think that just makes it even more of a oh, mystery. Uh, they had an opportunity to see him, but they just don't, don't see him. It sounds like it's one of the most well-executed crimes ever, but also it could be every single one of these things happened in his favor and he got in- extremely lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know which side yeah. I, I think it is. He could have been, you know, just an average criminal, never expected to get away with this, but everything worked. Right. And I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think... Right, there has to be some luck. Yeah, but. He, he knew exactly what he was doing and the fact that he stayed so calm while doing all of this would suggest that he went in and planned this thing for probably several months if not years see i don't think he was a a career criminal or anything either i think he was a regular guy who was extremely intelligent that makes it so much weirder because usually you don't jump from doing nothing to Taking a bomb on a plane. Right. But there are those stories. There's tons of stories of like, I mean, it's usually stuff like hijackings or more than likely like robberies that are done by people who like work for a certain place for a long period of time or do this. And someone who wouldn't normally engage in criminal activity, essentially over years and years, they develop this plan. Like, why wouldn't I not do this? Mm -hmm. It's so low risk essentially for them. How long yeah. did he work as a flight attendant with the, uh, the Christensen? company? Uh, he started working for Northwest Orient in 1954. And uh, he do, he wouldn't become a flight attendant until uh, just a few years after that. So he started out as, as a mechanic and then switched to being a flight attendant later on. But he had worked for Northwest Orient for um, what's 1954 to 1971. About 17 years. That's that right? got to be the guy, man. So when when did he stop working for them? Um, he would actually continue to work for Northwest Orient even after the hijacking. Wow! So uh, you know, <laughs> how talk did about it line hiding up? in plain sight? How did uh, it line up with his work schedule? Was he able to like make it to his next scheduled day to work, or was um, he scheduled to work? He on set up the those day days as his PTO. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure whenever <laughs> what his work schedule was the next week, but all I know is that. He continued to work for Northwest Orient until he retired. Wow. Dude, I mean, you're working for the airline. You know how all the protocol is. You know, like, everything about the plan because you were also a mechanic and worked on them. It's the perfect plan, man. Like, he's probably been planning that since, like, the first year on the job. And he's like, dude, like, this would be so easy to to carry out. It makes me think, do do y'all remember just a couple years ago, there was an Alaska Airlines, uh, like, ground mechanic that hijacked a plane and yeah. crashed it no yeah he, he so, took yeah. it and flew it into like some island yeah yeah and that was up there in washington also hmm. i don't know that just made me think of that it's the perfect guy could you imagine him just showing up to work the next day and someone's like 
Did you hear about the plane hijacking? And he's just like, weren't you dude, that guy on the television last that's night? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking like the cartoon reaction, or it would basically be like Josh from Drake and Josh's reaction to it. Like, oh, did you see that hijacking last night on the news? No, I don't watch the news. <laughs> I, what do you uh, No. I'm going to go eat lunch. You know what I mean? Like, so just completely chemistry. uncool about it. <laughs> but your dad's the weatherman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the weatherman. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so good. Oh, man. Dude, that's how a long, crazy story. How long was the uh, jump? How long would, have it, would it have taken him to get to the ground? Well... Speaking from experience, since I have gone skydiving before from 10,000 feet, um, usually the free fall lasts only about 30 seconds or so. And then that that takes you uh, almost halfway. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's about 5,000 feet that you travel in that very brief uh, period of time. And then uh, the rest of the time is just the parachute ride. And I'd say that takes about five minutes for that it, last. It does. But you also don't have to pull your chute at 5,000 feet to make it yeah. to the ground safely. And if you're hijacking a plane and jumping out and probably right, you may not be the most experienced person about skydiving. Like he could have mm-hmm. there. He could have very well, like just, you know, pulled his chute at 1500 feet or 2000 feet or something and cut a couple of thousand feet off of it made it down to the ground in about a minute. The only thing that would make me question that just a little bit is uh, this is all in the dark, so he might not be able to see the ground. And mountainous terrain. Yeah, and the trees that are there as well. So, uh, you know, I would think if I was him, I'd want to pull that cord as soon as I jumped out of the plane. <clears throat> yeah, just because... Just, yeah, but you just hijacked a plane... You have nothing to lose. If you hit the ground really hard, oh well, you might die. <laughs> You're gonna. Well, if you if you don't and you survive, there's still a good chance that you're gonna get caught. Like, just because he got away with it, it wasn't like he always knew that he was gonna get away with it. I mean, he might have, but I mean, there's always that chance that he got found. Like, maybe one of the fighter jets saw him or something. Like, there's a very good chance that he could have been caught. So what does he have to lose? Why why pull it early and risk being seen? No, I don't. Yeah, depending on how dark it was, I don't know if he would be seen. Well, it just depends on what color the shoot is. I mean, if rainbow, <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> Most of the time, they're like a to white give color. Give me the LED shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Blinking. <laughs> For like five give minutes, he LED. was the richest skydiver in the world. Gosh. Have you ever seen Without a Paddle? No. No. I haven't. There's a part where they like find like D.B. Cooper's body. Because like the whole thing is like his kids, they're looking for D.B. Cooper. And like near the end of the movie, they like fall into like this mine shaft. And they find like a dead body with a parachute. And like both his legs are broken. <gasps> dead body Cooper. So the idea is, you know, <laughs> yeah. he hit the ground and his legs are broken. But like yeah. the, not emotional, but like it's part of like the, the theme, I guess, of the movie is he um, he burned the money to oh. like stay alive. You know mm. what I mean? So the idea yeah. is like the money isn't worth it. He he traded the yeah. money for a few more extra hours. Yeah. Obviously fictional, but still interesting mm-hmm. that that yeah, was in a movie. That's crazy! Wow, what a story. Good grief! Oh man! But it, it's left quite the legacy. Oh uh, yeah. I mean. You know, just just the fact that it he's the only one that's ever gotten away, you know, uh, out of just about every single hijacking there is. Either they end up dead or they get arrested. Yeah. So it's just kind of crazy to think about. Now, uh, one of the, the funny things that happens uh, almost immediately after the D.B. Cooper case and then the, the McCoy case only mm-hmm. a few months later is they actually install a lock on the outside of the the stairs on every single Boeing 727 so that nothing like this could ever happen again. Um, So um, whenever you'd fly on a Boeing 727, you know, you would board from the outside, you know, through those stairs at the back, um, but they installed a little latch on the back so that it could only be opened from the outside. Um, Hmm. So that's kind of funny to think about that, 
you wow. had that kind of influence. Did this have any effect on airport security after the fact? Like yeah. the string of hijacking? Uh, of course it did. Actually, uh, <laughs> well, they, I know it did, but I didn't know if it was like, it didn't happen until like 1993. Or like, what did they start yeah, doing, pri- you know? Prior to uh, 1971, whenever this happened, uh, you could get on a plane with just yeah. about anything. It was almost like riding a bus, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, after that, uh, actually in 1973, the FAA actually started requiring all baggage to start being checked um, because he was able to get on this plane with a briefcase that had a bomb in it. And uh, so after this, every single you know, article of um, you know, baggage or whatever you want to call it started being uh, checked. How did McCoy get through? Uh, he did it in 1972. They didn't in, in okay. state this until 1973. Now, you could still purchase a plane ticket with cash at this point in time. Uh, you could actually do that for a, a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they're, I know they would start having uh, you know a lot more tight security um, after this as well, but it really wouldn't be until 9-11. Where that, it was like completely overhauled, yeah. essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we don't really know what it's like to just like go and like have a nice experience at the airport. Mm-hmm. We've never been able to experience that, Mm-mm. except when watching airplane. Yeah, I always <laughs> have a nice experience. Gosh. Don't call me Do you sure. like movies about gladiators? <laughs> <laughs> you ever been in a Turkish prison? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Your pets have. They're spying on you. Yeah. Yep. Call back. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh well cool. Do you have anything else you want to add? Um I don't know if I have really anything else. I mean, just the fact that this is uh still being talked about today. You know, yeah. uh, one of the things I always try to encourage some of my students to do is do more research on this. Especially uh, if I, there's something in particular that like gets you like hooked. Like if there's something that gets you like, it's actually really kind of cool. Like yeah. why not get into it? Like there's no reason not to go down the rabbit hole essentially for yeah. something that you enjoy. Yeah. I'll, I always uh, try to encourage my, my students that are doing modern American history to, cause I, I always require them to do a research paper at the end of the semester. And uh, if I, if they say that they're, having trouble picking a topic, I always say, hey, you could do D.B. Cooper if you wanted. And uh, usually after I tell them kind of what happened, they're they're kind of hooked. Yeah. And, they're uh, hooked and it gives you free uh, insight. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why But I if they get something wrong, like you're going to know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that, that is D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper is to Brett what the JFK assassination was to Mr. Edwards. Okay, so before, before we got over here, I started to ask, I, I was going to ask this at the beginning, and I forgot. Um, did you even have Mr. Edwards no, in high school? No, okay, because Brett got here his senior year. Um, no. So he, he missed out on the whole JFK thing. <laughs> we watched thing the Zapruder film in class a bunch of times over. Oh, man. he, he had done hilarious. He had done lots and lots of research on JFK, like, if he hadn't passed away the pat like uh, two years ago, yeah, yeah, I would have had him on the podcast because that oh, would have been that would have been incredible. Because he, I, I mean, he like devoted his life to the JFK assassination. Like he might have been one of the most. Was he into all the conspiracy theories? What are you looking at me for? <laughs> I think his theory was essentially. I mean, I'm sure he had a more like elaborate theory, but basically his theory was Oswald was set up essentially as kind of a patsy figure. Mm-hmm. And there were probably two or three other people who were more than likely probably pretty powerful figures um, who were involved. Mm-hmm. There's a lot and of actually there. shot. There's Kennedy. a lot of people out there that think that Lyndon Johnson had a, a little bit of a hand. I've in heard it. of that. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's so many different conspiracy theories surrounding the, the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Uh, that's a rabbit hole in and of itself. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like this is a conspiracy, but it's also not necessarily. Super. It's just unsolved crime. Yeah, it's just like an unsolved crime. So, yeah, really cool. Um, thank you for coming on and talking about DB Cooper, man. That was yeah. great. Yeah, man. really, really informative, really insightful. Um, I had not 
I, other than when I looked up that Wikipedia article on D.B. Cooper, I knew nothing about it. So this was awesome. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll maybe hear from Brett again on a different conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come, come have me on again. I'd love to. <laughs> anything history related or, or baseball. <laughs> That's true. That yeah. I love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it again. Uh, I had fun. This is right up my my alley yeah awesome. i get to do this every day that's true yeah <laughs> yeah that's yeah. true <laughs> awesome well uh i hope you guys enjoyed having brett talk to us about db cooper today hopefully you learned something um go subscribe to our podcast follow us on spotify leave us a review those are always appreciated and uh we'll see you in the next one so thank you guys for listening and goodbye <laughs>